John chapter 16, starting at verse 5. Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you now can bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we pray this morning uh, in Jesus' name that you will uh, thrill us, excite us with the fact that we have not been left alone, that you have sent your Spirit to be with us. Help us to understand that. Help us to be really excited about it and to allow uh, this morning the Spirit to make a difference to our lives. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, they tell me that a sermon is meant to begin with a highly inclusive statement that makes you immediately feel involved in the sermon. So, I have a question for you this morning. I wonder if any of you have been found guilty or convicted of something recently. Have you been convicted of something recently? Now, I have already confessed in this pulpit for the, of the necessity for me to attend recently a speed awareness course. I am amongst you as one convicted. I'm not aware of any other outstanding cases that need to be taken into account against me, but what about you? Parking ticket or two recently? Wave at me if you've had a parking ticket. Could you just confess? Oh, Chris, you're, you're going to be a missionary for goodness sake. Okay. Late payment of a bill, got any red bills recently, forgot to renew your car insurance, got your parking permit up to date, road tax. Okay, you're all looking pretty innocent. What about your Lenten promises? How's that going? Are you successful so far? Or do you share the experience of Anne Atkins as reported in the Daily Mail? Given to me, I hasted to add, not purchased. Okay. <laughs> And given, and, and given to me by a member of the 1115 congregation, so you're all right. <laughs> In the Daily Mail, Anne writes this, This is not the first time I've given up drink for Lent, but in recent years my abstinence has followed an embarrassingly typical pattern. I have managed to abstain for the first 10 days, 
but then one evening I decide I fancy a taste of whiskey before bed, so I will have a teaspoonful without telling, telling anyone. I haven't exactly drunk in secret, but I didn't go out of my way to tell anyone either. There would then inevitably come a party, I would allow myself one drink, then a birthday or celebration. By Easter, I was sloshing the alcohol as usual. Now, it may not be alcohol, but I guess we can all relate to Anne's experience, and we feel convicted. We have failed again. Our sins, if you like, have found us out. We can be uh, convicted in the sense of found guilty, and we can be convicted in the sense of convinced about something. Go back to my terrible crimes. I was convicted of driving too fast when the camera in Marston, that particularly sneaky one on the Marston Ferry Road, <laughs> caught me at 7 a.m. one Saturday morning, 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning, on my way heroically to speak at a men's breakfast somewhere or other, and I was going 34 miles an hour at 7 a.m. in the morning, but I was rightly convicted. I was found to be guilty. And I went, as you can imagine, protestingly, to the speed awareness course, but when you're on six points already, it's better to go to the speed awareness course <laughs> than, than have three more. And uh, at, the, at the speed awareness course, I was convicted in the sense of convinced of the need to drive more slowly because the evidence of crash damage relating to speed was incontrovertible, and it impressed me greatly. At least it did the second time I went on the speed awareness course. <laughs> you can now observe me creeping around North Oxford in, in third gear. Now, I think in John chapter 16, John is using the word convict in both these ways. Let me just read, and you might want to follow it again in John 16, page 1084. Let me just read the key verses again, verses 8 to 11. When the Spirit comes, He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and in regard to judgment because the prince of this world stands condemned. Now, I, I will be honest with you. I think that I must have read those verses numerous times in my life. And maybe you have as well. They're quite familiar verses, perhaps, to many of us here. And their meaning, even when I read them again and again, their meaning has never been immediately apparent to me. I think when we read those verses, it isn't apparent straight away what Jesus means. So I hope this morning to explain both for my own sake and yours a little bit as to what those words mean. Let's just get the context right again. Jesus is speaking with His disciples before His arrest, trial, and crucifixion. These chapters in John's Gospel uh, are often called the final discourses, and I imagine them probably to be a distillation of His teaching, perhaps over a longer period than just one evening, we don't know, and Jesus has brought this edited version of Jesus' teaching together in one corpus. And He even tells us that the process has occurred because of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the disciples, enabling the New Testament writers uh, to recall and record accurately both the words of Jesus and the words about Him. 
And that's what it's saying in verses 12 and 13 about what the Spirit will do in the lives of the disciples. He will help them to, uh, to, have an act, to produce an accurate record, which we have in the New Testament. So the words we have before us are, in a sense, validating the passage itself. They are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells His disciples that He has to go away. The cross is essential for their salvation. There is no other way. But they will not be left alone for very long, for the Spirit, who is Himself fully divine, the third person of the Trinity, will be with them and will enable them to write the Bible. So let's just get the logic of the argument right in our minds. Jesus goes away. The Spirit comes enabling the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and the apostolic writings of the New Testament to be written as the Word of God. Just as the Holy Spirit anointed the prophets and other writers of the Old Testament, now in this new age, the new covenant, the age of the new covenant, He inspires those of the apostolic age to write the New Testament. So as Jesus goes away, having completed His work of salvation, remember how He says on the cross, it is finished, it is completed, my part of the work of salvation is done on the cross, and is vindicated by the resurrection, proven to be the one who can pay the price of sin, the one sinless Savior. The disciples, by implication, us, therefore, followers of Jesus, are left with these two massive helps Uh, mutually dependent helps to enable us to do what Jesus said would be even greater things than He has done in regard to building His church. We are left with the Word and the Spirit working together. We're left with the Word and the Spirit. And Jesus recruited 11 as a basic unit, although we know that there were, in fact, rather more, of course, than that in the circle of the disciples, and, of course, notably, some very remarkable women who were crucial to the whole operation. So it was a very small band of people. Since then, because of the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in the hands and mouths of the people of God, millions, billions have been saved, billions are being saved, and by God's grace, billions more will be saved before Christ's victorious return. And we here at St. Andrews are caught up in that wonderful process. That's what's going on. Now, let's get back. That's the context. That's the logic of the argument. Let's get back to those puzzling verses, verses 8 to 11. In Jesus' physical absence, what do the Word of God and the Spirit of God working together achieve? That's what Jesus is saying here. This is what He's saying to the disciples. The Word of God and the Spirit of God working together through you, my followers, are going to achieve something. What is it? And I've been battling with how to explain this and thinking about this during this week, but let me try uh, this as a way of explaining it. I want you to come with me in your mind's eye to one of those American court dramas, Perry Mason, perhaps. I, I thought about Perry Mason, and I thought... It'll be okay for the 11.15 congregation, but we might struggle at 9.30. Anyone here remember Perry Mason apart from me? Oh, Ian Jones, what a relief. (laughs) No, there are a few of you here. Well, don't worry if Perry Mason means nothing to you because there are countless others. You know what the sort of thing I mean. There are two legal protagonists, and the hero or heroine can be on either side. One of the protagonists is usually male. 
He has a sort of surly grin on his face. He's not handsome. He's probably corrupt. He's usually the prosecutor, the DA, the district attorney. The lawyer defending the accused person is referred to as the counselor. Approach the bench, counselor. You know, why is it when British people try American accents, we always sound like the Muppets? I never understand why they <laughs> Anyway, you know what they say, approach, approach the bench, counselor. This person is usually female. Uh, she's usually glamorous. Uh, she's usually in court for the first time. It's my first case. <laughs> she's out of her depth. She's embroiled in a highly controversial and distracting love affair uh, in between court sessions. And, of course, she wins the case. So you've got the DA pointing out the guilt of the accused, and you've got the counselor sitting alongside the defendant arguing their case. Now, all illustrations are dangerous, but I think that this is what Jesus is saying will happen to the disciples after he is gone. They will be accused of all sorts of things. He's been talking about that in the verses before. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be hated by the world. You will be, so to speak, in the dock. And, of course, there's a sense in which we are with the great uh, attack on Christian values and Christian truth going on in our society today, in the newspaper every day. There's a sense in which we are on trial at this moment, defending Christianity. But the Holy Spirit will be alongside us to defend us as our counselor, enabling the Christians then and enabling us today to put our case to the world. But crucially, and this is the point that I think Jesus makes, crucially the Holy Spirit is also working as a prosecutor to convict the really guilty ones, which are not the disciples who are declared innocent by the cross, but the world which refused to believe in Jesus. They are convicted, it says, because they did not believe in me. Do you see that? Picture that dramatic courtroom moment when the innocent defendant collapses in joyful tears into the arms of his glamorous counselor. And the really guilty one is revealed in the court. The, the believing disciples are acquitted because of their faith, and the unbelieving world is condemned. The one who is accused goes free, and the guilty one is condemned. And that is what Jesus says will happen on the, on the day of judgment. That is what he says in verse 13. That is what the Holy Spirit reveals is to come. Vindication for believers condemnation for those who reject Christ. So you see around you today the Holy Spirit convincing people that they are sinners and convicting them of guilt. I was very interested this morning because I wasn't taking the 8 o'clock service. I listened to the 8 o'clock service which came from Cardiff University and they had somebody on there saying how uh, because they were Christians they had been convinced of the need to show love and compassion to the people late-night clubbers in Cardiff. Maybe some of you heard this. And so they take out water bottles late at night, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, to give water bottles and flip-flops to the uh, young people staggering drunk out of the nightclubs in Cardiff. And the girl's saying that uh, often we are uh, welcomed and our water bottles and flip-flops are accepted, but often we're abused and uh, insulted uh, even though we're doing what we believe to be a righteous thing. We're doing something we think is right, showing compassion for people. And it occurred to me as I was listening to this, this is exactly a good example of how the Holy Spirit works through 
His people today. They have become convinced of the need for righteous behavior, to do something compassionate, to love their neighbors. As they do so, hopefully, by God's grace, some of those clubbers will be convicted of the blind alley that binge drinking is, the, the, the false God that they are making of that lifestyle. So they may be convicted and want to find some better way. That seemed to be a good example of the Holy Spirit doing exactly what Jesus says here He will do. The Holy Spirit convincing people they're sinners and convicting them of guilt. And actually, this was precisely my experience as an 18-year-old. I thought that I was okay. I thought that I was a decent enough public school lad, you know, who went to church, played cricket, had a double-barreled name, and of course I was a Christian. Of course I was. Everybody was in Dorset. Most of them are. Most of them are. It's God's county, actually. But anyway, they won't go into that. But uh, the fact that I did not give a, 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 a God a, a moment's thought, except briefly on Sunday, at, the, at that time seemed unimportant. And only when I read the Bible and listened to Christian people explaining it did I come to see what a miserable sinner I was, which is how I describe myself week by week in the general confession, of course. But only as I read the Bible and listened to Christian people did I come to see the Bible inspired by the Spirit, Christian people speaking in the Spirit. Only then did I come to see my need of forgiveness. I knew I was in trouble, convicted and convinced by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Where could I turn from help? The Holy Spirit had convinced and convicted me of sin. So I needed, to, uh, I needed to be convicted and convinced of righteousness. I knew that I was in trouble, but where could I turn for help? Well, I read on in the Bible, and I learned about the cross, where Jesus, the perfect righteous Lamb of God, was sacrificed in my place. And His righteousness, that is, His perfect life, utterly different to my life, of course, of sin, was credited to me. His righteousness was credited to me. So God no longer looked at my blackened heart destined for judgment. He looked at me and saw Jesus dying in my place on the cross for my forgiveness. So I was convicted of the folly of self-reliance and convinced that I must throw myself upon the mercy of Jesus. My sinful unbelief, they don't know me because they don't believe in me, turned to trust in Jesus. And this is exactly what happens to the disciples after the resurrection. We'll see that as we read on in the story and read on in Acts. Their doubt and fear is turned to bold proclamation. The disaster of Jesus' departure is turned into the triumph of the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. So they are convicted of sin and they're convicted of righteousness convicted of their need for forgiveness, convicted of the way to righteousness by the cross. But still, of course, both they and I struggled with sin, as I'm sure you do. Temptation crouches at the door. It is not just Anne Atkins who finds it hard to keep her Lenten or any other promises. The road to hell seems paved with good intentions that we can't keep. So thirdly, the Spirit and the Word of God together convict me of judgment. The judgment of God surely awaits us because we fail so often. But no, as I read on in the Bible, uh, the Holy Spirit-inspired Scriptures, I discover that the one tempting me, 
the one causing me to fail, here called the prince of this world, has been condemned at the cross. He's condemned already. His sting, the sting of death, is drawn, and the curse, the curse of sin, put on mankind at the fall, and its appalling consequences are lifted. The prince of this world stands condemned. So, while the struggle to be good might be real and vitally important, the acquittal is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. It will be possible for the disciples, it will be possible for them, Jesus says, to live the victorious Christian life without His physical presence, and it is possible for us too. Because they thought this is going to be impossible to do without you. Lord Jesus, we can't do this. And He says you can do it in the power of the Spirit and with the Word of God to guide you. But we need, like them, to plug in daily to the twin power sources of Word and Spirit together. So, if you will put your trust in Jesus today, i.e., believe in Him as it says here, believe in Him, believe in Him. The opposite of sin is believing in Jesus. What is the work that God wants us to do? It says in John 6, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that He has sent. What is the most important thing that you can do as a Christian? Keep believing in Jesus. Keep trusting in Jesus. If you do that, the counselor is on your side. The counselor who sits beside you, arguing your case, he's on your side. The prosecutor is on your side. The counsel who is the prosecutor, pointing guilt at the truly guilty ones, not you. And ultimately, of course, even the judge is on your side, and he will pronounce you innocent. That is what Jesus is promising to his disciples. That is what he's saying to them before he goes away and as he leaves them. And that's what he promises you and me this morning, that if you will keep trusting in him, his spirit will be with you to help pointing you towards what is wrong in your lives, convincing you of what is wrong, convicting you of it. He will, uh, he will be there to guide you towards uh, the way of righteousness achieved at the cross of Calvary. And he will remind you again and again and again, even when you stand appalled at your failure, that the prince of this world is condemned, evil is defeated, you will be able to stand on the day of judgment and know that you are forgiven. Keep trusting in Jesus. Let's keep going to the winning line. It's almost too marvelous for words, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this astonishing promise of Scripture, that though we know that we fall well short of the mark, uh, though we struggle to be good, though we battle with temptation, the grace of Jesus is greater than all these things. Uh, we come before You and, and beg Your forgiveness for our failure and our sinfulness this morning. We thank You afresh for the wonderful deliverance at Calvary, that Jesus has paid the price of sin. We cannot pay that price, but the Lord Jesus went all the way for us. And we thank You that when He died and rose again, the greatest weapon that the devil had 
was destroyed forever. The power of death was destroyed and the curse of sin and its consequences lifted. Father, we thank you that we live in this new age. We have one foot in heaven already and we're thrilled at what you've done for us. Make us as individuals and as a community, those who believe in Jesus, those who trust in Jesus, those who have the Lord Jesus at the very center of everything we do. Amen.